Last Sunday, we crossed over into the fourth major theme of the book, Carnal Liberty, where Paul initially, and I think throughout the duration of this theme, but initially he's giving instructions to two groups that were quarreling over their Christian liberties, their freedoms. And I'm calling this whole, it's like four chapters, I'm calling this whole section Carnal Liberty because carnal liberty is what you end up with when Christians don't understand their actual Christian liberty and then abuse it or don't take advantage of it. And so it becomes carnal when we carnalize it. And that's what was happening. You had two groups that were warring over these freedoms. One thought you should have the freedoms. One thought you shouldn't. And uh, the first group we've been basically calling the more knowledgeable group Uh, This particular group in this church, and by the way, there really shouldn't be groups in the church. It's just one group. But in this church, you had all sorts of little groups. And this particular group was perfectly fine with eating foods sacrificed to idols. They had no problem with going to the meat market and buying meats that had been dedicated previously before they made it to the meat market, had been dedicated to idols in the temple. And there was all this extra meat, and they sold it in the markets. This group had no problem with buying that meat eating that meat. They basically understood, as Paul says in chapter 8, verse 4, that an idol has no real existence. Idols are figments of carnal men's imaginations. They have no substance, no existence. They're nothing. So we shouldn't be afraid of something that's associated with them. How can you be afraid of something that's associated with literally nothing? I suppose for fallen sinners like us, it's pretty easy to be afraid of nothing. Uh, But this first group just did not have a problem with this at all. I'm not sure that they were flaunting it or throwing it in people's faces, the exercising of their liberties, but they just didn't have a problem with it. We know that for sure. And then you had another group, um, and and we were calling them or we're calling them the less knowledgeable group. You have the more knowledgeable group and the less knowledgeable group. These folks had real trouble with eating food sacrificed to idols. They had a big time problem with it. They didn't want to eat the stuff. They didn't want to go near the stuff. They didn't want to be associated with it or with anyone who worshiped idols, which pretty much took them out of the mission field because our mission field is unbelievers and they all worship various idols. And so when you're at this level, you not only not eat it, but you're not associating with the world around you. And you're f- afraid of the world around you and that you're going to be contaminated by it. And this group just did not understand um, idols. They didn't have a proper theology of them. They didn't know or comprehend the idea that they have no real existence. They also were ignorant of their own Christian liberties. Obviously, if they're afraid of idols and don't want to eat things that within Christian liberty is permissible, then they don't understand Christian liberty. And this group was kind of fearful and accusatory. Like, if they saw you participating in something like this, they would accuse you of wrongdoing and question you and say, why are you doing that? You shouldn't have anything to do with that. And, of course, these two groups kind of came to blows when the less knowledgeable group complained and the more knowledgeable group defended its freedom. And as we learned last week, both groups were at fault. One was at fault for kind of insisting on its rights, and the other was at fault for being ignorant and not understanding its rights. The less knowledgeable group was ignorant and what I would say or call in love pesky. 
believers who are less knowledgeable that, that hound believers who are more knowledgeable over these things, they become pesky, an annoyance. They become the type of people that you really don't want to be around because they're always, they always have a problem with something. And that's how they were. And then the response of the more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable group was pride and they were unloving. You know, they, they weren't patient with these people. They weren't really trying to instruct these people or help these people understand. They certainly weren't sacrificial. They weren't willing to lay aside their rights. And this is the group, the more knowledgeable group, is the group that Paul primarily addresses in chapter 8. Um, he certainly supports their freedom to eat whatever they want, but challenges their lack of sensitivity and love toward the weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters. Those who stumble over things like eating food sacrificed to idols, which was really kind of a first century thing. Our parallel was drinking alcoholic beverages, I think is a good parallel for us. There's some Christians that think that that's okay as long as they're not drunk. And there's others who say stay away from it altogether. And it's not because they had a prior addiction or use, misuse of it. It's because they just think it's evil and wicked. And spirits is in the word, so stay away from spirits, right? So you had these two groups that were kind of battling over this and battling over their favorite preachers. And this, this church was a mess. It was a real mess. And we learned that chapter 8, because that's where we're at, it pretty much features four main points. We looked at 1 and 2 last week, and this morning we're going to look at 3 and 4 and kind of wrap up this chapter. Lord willing, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 7 to 13 will be our text. I want to pray once more as we begin. Father, help us now as we open your word. It is profound and mysterious, straightforward. It contains the gospel, salvation. It sanctifies the saints and builds us up. It convicts unbelievers. It even hardens unbelievers. Uh, Lord, we pray today, Lord. And we know the scripture says that your word never returns void. We know that it won't. And what we humbly ask now is that as it does not return void, that through your word, you would accomplish all of your purposes for your people this morning, as well as for those who are not yet your people, if there be any here. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves and place ourselves under the authority of your truth. Christ is our senior pastor and primary expositor. May we hear from you today through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Teach us these other points regarding carnal liberty. We want to get this right. So help us to understand what we're about to look at. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our third point. Number three, these were all C's, by the way. Be considerate toward others. This is the very next thing that Paul says after he exposits for a bit and, and gives admonition and exhortation. Now he is essentially saying in verses 7 to 11, he is saying, you need to be considerate toward others. And this is being addressed primarily to the more knowledgeable group. Because if they're just all about jumping in and doing their rights, they're not being considerate toward others who don't understand that, who have the ignorance. So be considerate toward others. We'll start in verse 7. Listen to what he says. However, he's just got done unfolding all this wonderful 
uh, exposition about God and who he is, how he's the true God, and Jesus is the true Lord, and idols are nothing. Okay, so that's what he's been saying, and now he says this, however, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge? A proper knowledge of who God is, a proper knowledge of what idols are. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, they used to be idol worshipers, eat food as uh, really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Stop there. So it's like Paul is unfolding this wonderful exposition of the trueness of the one true God and the Lord Jesus and how idols are nothing. And now he's saying, but in your midst are people who do under they don't understand this. They do not understand the things I'm telling you. They don't understand the liberty. They don't understand why you're doing what you're doing and why you have a problem with them and whatever. He has literally obliterated these so-called gods and lords of the Corinthians. How? By juxtaposing them to the one true God, the Father, and to the one true Lord, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we looked at in verses 5 and 6. And now he's reminding the more knowledgeable group that there are some in your midst who do not possess this particular knowledge. They just don't understand what you understand. They haven't dug into the word deep enough where they just, God hasn't opened their eyes to it yet, which I find hard to believe, but they just don't get it. And I think that, you know, you, you say to yourself, the church is about 18 months old. We learned that eons ago, but it's like after 18 months, how, how do you not quite understand this? Well, I think what's happening is there are newer believers in this church baby believers. I mean, I, honestly, at 18 months, 16 months, 18 months, you're still a baby believer. But I think there were believers in this church who were even newer than that. They had come to faith in Jesus Christ through, you know, through one of the apostles preaching or through somebody there, and, and they're weeks old, months old, six months old. They're very, very new to the faith. I think he was probably referring to new, new believers here. Brand new, baby believers, like Caden-level believers, you know, little baby Caden. These, guys, these, are, these are little babies. These are little baby believers, you know? Those who throw away all the bad music and everything and get rid of everything and I'll never drink again, I'll never do this again, I'll never carouse again. They, they, you have all those convictions when you're first saved. and, and these, these are those believers, and, and they're, they're, they're probably on fire. Like people in the church wanted to set them on fire because they were disrupting all the liberty. Uh, but these people were on fire for the Lord and they didn't want anything to do with their old life. And, and, and that calls for consideration and compassion, not, well, you just don't understand a thing or two there, little uh, baby believer, Caden. I shouldn't use Caden's name. I'll hear about that on the trip down to L.A. And we'll go back to one of the other names like Joe or Fred. These are probably people whom God had just brought out of that paganism with all of its temptations and corruptions. And in their minds, idols were real. And at this point, even the gods that those little man-made idols represented, those gods are still kind of real to them. Like they have real power. I mean... Think about you living in a culture like this, not knowing Jesus, and it's all about all this false religion and idolatry, and there's literally temples all around town where people go and sacrifice and make offerings. There's going to be a real tangible realness to that to you. These people aren't 
going around acting like they're faking. This isn't a Hollywood production. Their entire lives in Corinth revolve around these religions. So it's very tangible and it very seemingly real. And don't think for a moment that once you're converted, that all goes away in 24 hours. Sanctification is a process of removing years and years of garbage. And so you've got baby believers, little Freds, who still think that what's going on, there's, there's something about it. And, and yes, it's false, and I get that now, but there's still the fears associated with it, and there's a strong desire to detach from all of that around them. And we see a similar calling on the Israelites' life, don't we? As they went into particular territories, they were to, they were to literally kill everyone and destroy all the false religion, which they didn't. They ended up marrying and everything and intermarrying, and it got real messy. But they were called out of all of that. And Christians have been called out of all of that. And when you're new and don't have a lot of knowledge, you literally start drawing lines in the sand. So much so that you lose the mission field. And so that's what you've got going here. They thought, well, these idols are real things. I can see them in the market and people are worshiping them. And I think probably the gods that they worship are maybe real in a way. I don't know, but I'm not going near it. In other words, the residue of all the polytheism that they had grown up to was still there. You know, you, you worship 50 gods, you get saved on Tuesday, Wednesday, you're still dealing with 50 gods. They don't go away overnight. You begin to realize over time that they're nothing. I think that uh, MacArthur says something really interesting, that these newer believers that were struggling with all this, they knew that there was only one right God. They had that right. That kind of came with the, you know, the DNA of salvation. There is one true God. But they weren't quite sure yet if there was one real God. There's a true God. Maybe he's above all these others. Maybe he's like takes the place of Zeus. But I'm not sure yet if there's only one real God. So they were giving some kind of credit to these idols and stuff. And it's because they're young in the faith. Even if they did understand that there was only one true and real God, the experiences of their past pagan lives were so fresh, uh, you know, that they just basically rejected anything that had anything to do with it. And that's what new believers do. They just, bam, that's it, man. It's a full divorce. And that's what they're doing. And, and for a newer believer, for these people in Corinth to participate with the old way in any way was to be tempted to fall back into those practices. The stuff was just so fresh and so ingrained. And some of these new converts just, they wanted to take no chance of being contaminated again by the evil influences that had, you know, basically governed everything they thought and did. Because you need to understand that religion in the first century was a life it wasn't something people did on Sundays. It was your life. Everything in your life centered around those gods and the religious mechanism associated with it. You visited the temple every day. You did all these things. People have the idea that Christianity is on Sundays here. No, it's the Christian life. A whole life with a worldview 
everything revolves around Jesus. That's how it's supposed to be for us. But no, it's something that we do. It's something that we add. And, you know, some of us can't even do that very well because we can't show up on Sundays. I'm sorry, that sounds insensitive, but I'm looking at all these empty seats. Hopefully people are just sick, and that's weird to pray for that. <laughs> I just hope they're ill. Not being irresponsible. You know, it was, it was a life. Your universe revolved around this stuff, and, and they just didn't want anything to do with it. They were so worried about these things. The weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters, that particular group just shrunk back and refused to have any kind of contact at all with things that were associated with that past paganism, that false religion, the eating of foods offered to idols, and so on and so forth. You know, I honestly think that even though they're operating in ignorance, I think this is a good move for them. You get saved and you don't quite understand things. The best thing for you to do when you don't have understanding yet is just to stay away from these bad things. It really is, right? Isn't that a good idea? To me, I think that's a good idea. Why would you be around those things when your conscience is still weak and not bolstered and built up by the word and temptations are going to be all over? You're a new Christian now. You've transferred from the kingdom of darkness to light and darkness is going to be all over you. It just, it's a good idea to divorce. Heaven forbid we should have believers on the other side going, come on into the market and have some meat that was offered to Belial. That's stupid. And that's what's going on. Well, I have rights. Mm. Yeah, you do have rights. And they just didn't want anything to do with it. They were terrified of the stuff. Their consciences were not yet strong enough to allow them to participate in you know, eating food sacrificed to idols without having you know, these religious mechanisms and these things that they were endeavoring before just to have them pull them back into their former idolatry. They divorced it across the board because they didn't want to be tempted to go back in. You know, if we have a, a problem with alcohol, we, don't, we shouldn't be hanging around in bars. And if a Christian invites us to, that Christian needs to get slapped upside the head. That's dumb. That's insensitive. That's unloving. I just realized something as I was in the back. If you fast forward like two chapters, there's warnings against idolatry. What is the idolatry? Your Christian freedom is the idolatry. Your Christian liberty becomes idolatry when you insist on doing that and you don't care how it hurts anyone else. That becomes your lower G God. What else could he be talking about? That's the context. I was sitting back there going, well, I didn't realize this as I was preparing. Maybe I should wait a few months before I unpack it for the church, but I can't help myself. I think the idolatry is broader than that. There is the temptation to return to the things of Corinth, but part of it also has to do with turning our own liberty into an idol. This is what can happen. Just because we've been saved from idolatry doesn't mean that there isn't a temptation to return to it in every shape and form or to replace the former types of idolatry with new expressions. This is that the human heart is an idol factory, Calvin said. It just cranks them out, right? Man, if my heart, you know, if we could capitalize on how much idolatry my heart, cap, you know, just is, is just creeping out or just producing everyone, we could, we could fund the economy, there's just so much of it going on there all the time. 
these lesser, knowledgeable, weaker, conscienced brothers and sisters, they just, if they had gone against their consciences and just participated in the things that these more mature believers were doing, Paul says it would have defiled their consciences. If they'd have just been invited to do something or witnessed others doing it and then decided to participate, it would have just smoked their weaker consciences. It would have defiled their consciences. You, you need to understand something. Okay, truth is truth is truth is truth. We know the truth. We're learning the truth. We're growing in the truth. But when something is wrong for a person, regardless of what this says, it is wrong for that person. That's their conscience telling them that. That's their conviction. You can sit there until the cows come back from grazing all day and be making the, laboring the same point that what you're talking about is lawful, but as long as they sense and feel that it is wrong, it is wrong for them. And that's where we need to be considerate. Yes, the knowledge is based on ignorance, but we don't rub that in people's faces and want to force something on them so they violate their conscience. If these people had participated, they would have nuked their consciences. If a person thinks something is wrong for them, it is wrong for them, and it doesn't matter if the issue is lawful or not. If that's someone's conviction, you've got to leave that alone. Even if you're sitting there going, man, I just, Fred just doesn't get it. Well, fine. In this particular instance, it's eating food offered to idols. This is wrong to them. Their consciences say, no, no, no. Don't do it. And it was lawful, wasn't it? It is lawful for Christians. Why? Because an idol has no real existence, verse 4. God is God. But if a person's conscience tells them it is wrong, they should obey their conscience and stay away from those things. They should. If they go against their conscience and, and eat those things, they defile their conscience and feel as if they've been sinning against the Lord. James 4, 17, to him who knows it's sin and does it, it's sin. That's what James is talking about. He's talking about violating the conscience. J-Mac wrote, even though the act, he's talking about food sacrificed to idols, eating those things, even though the act in itself is not morally or spiritually wrong, it becomes wrong when it is committed against conscience. A defiled conscience is one that has been ignored and violated. Such a conscience brings confusion, resentment, feelings of guilt. A person who violates his conscience willingly does what he thinks to be wrong. In his own mind, he has committed a sin. And until he fully understands that the act is not a sin in God's eyes, he should literally partic not participate in it at all. He needs to stay away from it. Paul is essentially saying that since there are believers in the church who think this way, it is the responsibility of those who have outgrown that mindset to be considerate, especially when practicing their Christian liberties. The first thing that should come to our minds is, is everyone okay with this? When you're at a gathering or at some setting and you want to participate in something, you know you have the liberty to do as long as you do it in a way that glorifies God. But the first thing you should say to yourself if you're surrounded by people is, will everyone here be okay with this? That's what it means to be considerate. Instead of just going, well, I just do what I want. Hmm. 
And here's the deal. If a, a weaker brother or sister objects, if they have a problem with what you're endeavoring to do, like meet sacrificed idols in this particular context, here's what happens if somebody has a problem with that and you know it. Or maybe you don't realize it yet and then you participate and then they tell you. Either way, the stronger brother who is exercising the freedom, the stronger sister, they must abstain or at least do it in private. But we talked about the dangers there because sometimes when we practice those things in private, it's not actually private because there's little eyes and ears present. Are we teaching our kids at the youngest ages to drink alcohol? Very dangerous. Got to be smart about this. Why would you want to abstain in that setting so as not to tempt the weaker brother or sister to violate their conscience? Because that's where it becomes a huge problem, according to Paul. So being considerate and, and even if you have to abstain, that is the loving and considerate thing to do in that scenario. That's what's loving. That's loving someone other than yourself. Because to set aside and not to be considerate and just to do what you want is the loving of self. You're an idol. You now worship yourself. You care more about yourself than you do your brothers and sisters, especially when there's weaker ones there. Mm. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God, Paul says. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Obviously, he's not talking about eating in a general way because if you don't eat, you kind of shrivel up and pass away. He's talking about the spiritual impact of it. This, to me, seems to be another theological salvo fired at the weaker, less knowledgeable group. I love how Paul switches back and forth. He has some words for the strong group, and then he goes after the weak group because both are at fault. And I think this comment in verse 8 is fired at them. They thought food sacrificed to idols was spiritually perilous and could destroy a believer's union with God. You know, if I eat that, I'm just out of the faith. I'm gone. I'm done. I'm, I'm back to what I was. All hail Jupiter. Right? I'm done. And the general point Paul is making is that food has no significance in our relationship to God. It is spiritually neutral is what he's teaching this group that's all hung up on this. Oh, don't eat that. Wow. You don't understand. You're putting yourself and your family in spiritual peril. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's spiritually neutral. It doesn't bring you to God or take you away from God. It doesn't change your spiritual life. It doesn't undo the work of God in your heart. Nothing can. Only God, and he won't do it. Although sometimes I think that he, you know, it's a different thing. It's spiritually neutral. Food offered to idols is no different from food not offered to idols. I, I, I don't know who mentioned it to me last week after the service. It was kind of interesting. And I was like, yeah, I really just don't see. I see parallels to that in our context, but I don't really see food sacrificed to idols and us participating that today, right? I don't see that. That's a first century thing. He goes, you ever been to a Chinese restaurant with a Buddha on the counter? I was like, every Chinese restaurant? What do you think you're doing? Eh? I was like, man, you should be preaching, not me. He's all, no, no, you keep doing it. I'm out. But I'll give you wisdom on occasion. 
And that was such a great example. I mean, you go to any Chinese restaurant, and there's the Buddha. And there's usually a little coin thing in front of him, because Buddha's broke, I guess. <laughs> he needs money. Tithe to Buddha. Mm. Sometimes I just want to take my chopsticks and just stab that thing. Just that. I don't like the idolatry. I don't, I don't like it, you know? And maybe I'm more like the weaker ones here. I should look at it and go, you're nothing. Just don't say it too loud. <laughs> food offers to idols, it's just nothing. It, it, it doesn't matter. if you eat Regular food, food offered to idols, all the same. There's no spiritual consequence or power there. But Paul is not suggesting that food is never used for evil purposes either. He's not suggesting that. I mean, food is at the center of this controversy in Corinth where the stronger brothers were eating whatever they wanted and causing the weaker brothers to stumble spiritually. So the food itself doesn't have any kind of spiritual power, but it was being used by the devil in this scenario to divide this church. Food. Food's supposed to bring you together. You have a good time with it and look what it's doing. And that's us. That's not the food's fault. In that particular scenario, idol foods and Christian liberty were really being weaponized against the weaker group in a way. Paul also understood the dangers of gluttony. And why do I bring these points up? Because some people look at like, eh, there's just, he just does, his theology is just inept. It doesn't include anything. He's making the point about its spiritual connotation here or spiritual consequence, but he's not suggesting that gluttony is not a real thing. It is. At one point, he condemns some gluttons who were trying to thwart his ministry. He says, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. Philippians 3.19, you gals probably just read that if you've gotten there yet. Paul understood that gluttony is a destructive sin. Proverbs 23.19-21. You know what else gluttony is? It is, I would say, probably the most pervasive sin. And yet it's a sin that gets almost no attention in pulpits. Homosexuality gets attention, not in most pulpits anymore. And this one it does on occasion. And alcohol abuse and sexual immorality, all those sorts of things get all kinds of attention. But one that rarely, if ever, gets any attention is gluttony. And it is probably the most pervasive in America. In 2007, Forbes rated the United States the ninth most overweight country in the world in 2007. In 2022, it was reported that over 41.9% of U.S. adults are classified as obese. That's half of the country. Do not tell me that gluttony is not a major sin here. That's almost half of our population. And gluttony leads to obesity, obesity leads to heart disease, and heart disease kills more Americans than anything else, 700,000 a year, even more than all of the cancers. Playwright George Bernard Shaw hit the nail on the head when he wrote, there is no love sincerer than the love of food. Hmm? That's clever. That's apropos. That is today. The funny thing is, is that it's appealing to me because the older I get, the more I love food. When I was younger, I didn't care. I just, you know, blew through some Taco Bell to get to the next thing. And today, I savor Taco Bell. I don't know how anyone savors that, but I find a way. Get the sauce combination just right. 
and I am about 20 pounds overweight right now. And that does not feel good. But that is a real problem. And Paul is not suggesting that that doesn't exist. He wasn't oblivious to the dangers around food. He is simply saying that in and of itself, eating or not eating certain foods has absolutely no spiritual significance. He was in agreement with Jesus who declared, it is not what goes into your body that defiles you, because that's the fear of these weaker brothers and sisters. They're worried that if they take in this idle meat that it's going to defile them spiritually. And Jesus said, it's not what goes in that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out because that is a reflection of your heart. Mark 7, 15, I quoted that verse last week. It's not what goes in that you need to be concerned about. It's what is coming out of you through the expressions of your heart. If you have a converted new heart, godly things should be coming out. If your heart is jacked up, it's, it's, it's a heart of stone still, then there's not going to be anything good that comes out of it ever. J-Mac again, food makes no difference for food's sake, for ceremony's sake, or, or for God's sake. But it can make a great difference for the sake of the conscience of some of his children. Huh? That's a good quote. He's saying, you know, it doesn't have any spiritual power. It can't destroy you spiritually. But your misuse of your liberty and then you getting others to go on board with that, like the eating of the meats, and it violates their conscience, then all of a sudden it can become very, very destructive. You are hurting another brother or sister, even spiritually. So it's really the Christian liberty that has the power to really foul somebody up. Very, very good point by him. Big point by Paul being be considerate. Know who you're around, know your surroundings, and be ready and willing to lay down your rights for the sake of weaker consciences. And let's move to the fourth and final point. Number four, be careful not to sin. And we see this in verses 9 to 13. We'll pick it up in 9 through 11. Listen to what he says next. This is very interesting. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. My goodness, that is, that is, that's got some weight. That's got some firepower. That's serious what he's saying. The words take care literally introduce a warning, right? This whole section, 9 to 13 in particular, should be viewed as a warning other English translations say, uh, instead of take care, they say be careful, the NIV, take heed, the King James, beware, the New King James, watch out, the LEB, that's the Lexham English, and be careful, the HCSB, which is a wonderful translation. All of them hit the nail on the head in terms of the Greek. It is a warning, you need to be careful, you need to take care, you need to watch out. This is what Paul is saying. 
He is warning the Corinthians and more specifically the more knowledgeable group to be careful when it exercises its right, right to eat these meats or whatever because that can become, as Paul says, a, quote, stumbling block to the weak, unquote. Just the, the simple exercising of a Christian liberty can become something that trips up other believers. He expressed the exact same concern to the church in Rome. Apparently it had stronger believers who were eating what's said there. And it's probably the same foods, maybe not, maybe things that were prohibited in the Old Testament, but they were eating quote-unquote unclean foods, and that was causing weaker believers to stumble, Romans 14, 14. I think the unclean foods are things that are mentioned probably in Leviticus 14. There's a whole list of things in Leviticus 14 that the Israelites should, you know, were not to eat. Swarming things, and that just sounds like that's turning my appetite off. Stay away from swarming things. Oh, no problem. I won't have any problem with staying away from bugs, because that's what that sounds like, unless you're talking about the blackbirds down at Brigsmore and McHenry. I don't know, you know, you want, a, you want a comprehensive list of what to stay away from, go to Leviticus 14. Have a crazy nut job brother-in-law who, I mean, he's just a hilarious guy. And he, he went to Saudi Arabia and, and used to do uh, contract work. He was teaching Saudis how to work on our Huey helicopters and all our military helicopters. Apparently, we've sold a lot of weaponry to the Saudi Arabians. I'm not sure if that's wise because I think they're involved in the towers coming down. Uh, but in any case, that's a whole different issue. My brother-in-law was there for years, and you know he would go into these Saudi grocery stores and send me pictures of the food they ate. And I'm like, and he, he always managed to time it perfectly. Like it was in the morning for him, which was dinner time for us, and then I'm getting a picture of ground camel. And, and it, looked, it looked just like beef. It, it was just red meat. By the way, Leviticus 14.4, don't eat camel. All that buildup just for that stupid joke. Now he'd send me these pictures. And I'm like, Rick, stop sending me these when I'm trying to eat. You want to eat camel? Go ahead, bro. You know? You're not helping, you're not helping us over here. Uh, but it, there's a whole list of prohibitions there. And I think that in Romans 14.4 or 14.14, I think that's what he's talking about, unclean. That would be like pork products and hoofed animals that don't have this characteristic and swarming things and, you know, shellfish. Heaven forbid, you can't have a scallop. I'm, I'm just out, you know, no lobster. I think that's what they're talking about there. In verse 10, Paul gives an example of a stumbling block, right? He doesn't just say, hey, you create one for your weaker brother when you you know, make sure that you, when you use your rights, you don't create one. He gives an example or a scenario of where this plays out. It's really quite clever. He describes a, uh, basically begins by describing a more knowledgeable or more mature saint eating in an idol's temple. So I, he takes it up a notch. It's not just that this person is eating food sacrificed to idols like that he got at Save Mart. He's got the guy doing that, but in an idol's temple. Like the guy went to a wedding reception at the temple of Diana, right? Like, you know, there's a big temple building. It's like the church of the community, and there's, you know, Margaret and Biff are getting married there, and he shows up at this idol's temple, and now he's eating Biff. I don't know. 
back to the future. And now he's eating the food sacrificed to the idol in the idol's temple. So he, that's a higher example, right? That's like an extreme example. He's not just eating it, but he's eating it in the place of the idolatry. And I think that a, a parallel for us would be maybe something that I experienced years ago as a DJ when I got hired by some Mormons to spin music for their wedding in one of their little temple things. And uh, everyone in there was eating and drinking in, in honor of their uh, lower J false Jesus. And, uh, and one of the biggest foibles of the whole thing, now I'm, I was happy for the work and it didn't bother me one bit. I was in there eating what they had and everything. But when I got to the chocolate cake, I had a big problem, big problem. See, I am a chocolate fiend and Mormons don't do caffeine, and they think that chocolate, maybe it does, has small amounts. So this was a chocolate-less chocolate cake. Oh. It was like a cliff bar without any kind of honey in it. It was like eating sawdust. I just don't see how it could be worshipful. It was disgusting. But it would be like that, right? Or, or maybe even a higher example, or maybe a worse example, or I don't know, maybe a... a, a more risque example would be like eating what's called modak, that's sweet dumplings in a Hindu temple during some kind of wedding feast for some Hindu couple that you as a Christian got married, or you didn't get married there, you got married there, I don't know how that happened, but you got invited <laughs> to the wedding. So this is the scenario, this person finds themselves in this sort of temple setting, eating these foods. And maybe they're just a Christian that was invited to a pagan wedding. This happens all the time, right? Most of the weddings that I do as a DJ are for unbelievers. And there's all sorts of weird stuff going on there, like chocolate-less cake, and I don't know. There's Christians present in this environment Paul is giving us, this scenario. They, they were invited. And then you have this, like, weaker brother or sister or whomever who's there. They got invited, too, and they're Christians, too. And maybe they're newer to the faith or whatever, but they're there, and they're present, too, and they're watching you, you know, gobble up all these foods. You go through the food line three times, and then when you get to the chocolateless cake, you put that back down after taking a bite. But they see you there participating in these things. This is the scenario that Paul is painting, and I find it interesting that this weaker brother is even in this temple at all. But Paul didn't answer that for us. But he's there, and he sees you participating. And he sees you doing it, but his conscience says, don't you do it. You are, you know what, I'm glad you brought a granola bar, because that's your dinner tonight. You're not going to eat of the uh, way underdone prime rib. You're not going to participate. That's what his conscience is saying. And, but he sees you doing it, Paul is saying, and he feels that, Maybe he needs to fit in because he's the only person in the room who's not eating. Something inside of him is saying, don't do it. And then something, it's like the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. Don't do it. Do it. Right? Do it. And he feels that he needs to make a plate and kind of blend in. And he does that and he participates, although he has violated his conscience. And at the end of the night, this poor guy realizes what he's done and he's overwhelmed by a feeling of just dirty filthiness and failure, right? You violate the conscience. It's a hammer blow. He feels terrible over this. You know, he saw you doing it and thought, well, I guess I'll just do it. His conscience is screaming, don't do it. He doesn't anyways. He feels horrific. He totally regrets that decision to violate his conscience. He wishes that he had just stayed home that night. 
maybe I just shouldn't have gone to the wedding at all. I knew these things would be there, and I thought maybe I had a stronger constitution or willpower and I could avoid it, and I just caved to it. And now he feels like the Lord has left him. He, he feels like, um, yeah, it's just, it's just over. And in the following days, he just kind of continues to suffer from this. He suffers severe spiritual defeat, and he's questioning even his faith and his commitment to the Lord. This is the example that Paul gives. Okay, he doesn't do it in a Mormon thing or a Buddhist temple, Mormon temple. He does it in one of those temples in Corinth. But the people would have understood exactly what he meant. And this is what's happened. You've gone, you've ate, and you've caused somebody to stumble. And now they're spiritually jacked up. Big time. Big time. Might be similar to the emotions and feeling of when you have had some substance issues and then in weakness you go back to it. Or maybe pornography. There is, I don't know, um, in the whole range of human feelings, that violation of conscience once it's realized is absolutely devastating. Do we realize that this is usually why people jump off the Golden Gate Bridge? Because they have so violated their conscience that they can't even exist. That they feel the only way out is to end life. This is how dangerous the violation of conscience can be. Luther, facing a panel death squad, said, I cannot... I can't, I can't renounce these works. They're gospel works. I can't renounce them. To do so would be to violate conscience. And my conscience is, is captive, held captive to the word of God. It was a worse death sentence for him to renounce his works and violate his conscience than them just killing him for being a gospel minister. He said, I can't do it. He understood how dangerous it is. And this guy is just devastated, Paul says. Now, notice in verse 11 who Paul says is at fault. Ah, it's not the brother with the weaker conscience who's now destroyed. It's the insensitive, more knowledgeable brother who failed to love. Paul uses the strongest possible language here. Some of the strongest, strongest language you would ever find in any of his epistles. The knowledgeable brother caused the weaker person to be destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. The Greek word for destroyed is apolemi, and it means to perish or to lose. David Garland says Paul was not concerned about merely offending a weaker brother. He is worried that the weaker brother will, will literally fall away from the Christian faith and return to his pagan idolatry. You see, in that week's worth of spiritual struggle, that weaker brother who's just destroyed his conscience is going to be so overwhelmingly tempted to return to his pagan idolatry to find comfort and solace. And that's the concern of Paul here, is that the stumbling block leads to the violation of conscience, which leads to the departure of the faith. And I will say this to you as clearly as I can. This can happen. 
Well, no, God's sovereign. No, this can happen. No one can ever fall all the way away, but they can fall away. This can happen. We, we err as Calvinists so hard on the side of God that we just there's just no responsibility on our end and there's nothing to ever be concerned about. Look, the Bible is Calvinistic and yet every Calvinistic point is followed by strong warnings for us to even press on and cross the finish line. God is not going to do it all for you. You've got to be careful. You can't cause someone to fall away. Will they lose their salvation? No, you can never cause that. But you can cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble and violate their conscience and depart from Christ for a season. Not to literally walk all the way away, but to walk away to a degree. This is Paul's concern here. This was shocking to me. A difficult, a difficult pill, a difficult drink, a difficult food to swallow because I have just studied the sovereignty of God for so long and I believe the sovereignty of God is fully intact here. Look, the example that we set can have a profound impact on others, especially our weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters. We can lead them either toward Christ or away from Christ. This is part of the, the awesome responsibility of having a high calling. I cannot cause a brother or sister to be unsaved. I don't have that power. Thank God but I can cause them to act like they're not saved. I can cause them to depart and to wander from the path. I can cause them to become a stray sheep. We know that a true believer can never fall entirely away from grace and become unsaved. Our salvation is permanent. Whoever believes in Christ, capital, all caps, shall not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. But they can depart from following Christ on a regular day-to-day -day basis, like Paul's trusted confidant, Demas, who returned to the world, 2 Tim 4, 10. Paul is teaching them and us that the use of Christian liberty, and I should say the misuse of it, can lead to this very thing. And this is why he issues such strong warnings in chapter 8 and then describes how he himself forfeited his Christian liberties in chapter 9. He never wanted to, to engage in something that could cause this to happen. He never wanted to engage in something that he was free to do that would inflict harm. And neither should we. J-Mac, once more, our Christian liberty must never be used at the expense of a Christian brother or sister who has been redeemed at such a price. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Oh, man. Strongest possible language once more aimed at 
Christians, not Pharisees. The more knowledgeable group, they just thought they were exercising their rights. Hey, it was a great party last night. It was a great feast. But Paul says that the wounding of a conscience is sinning against your brothers and a sin against Christ. He is saying, you better be careful. If you wound your brother's conscience, you're not exercising a right. You are sinning against him and against the one who redeemed and bought him through his bloody, horrific, sacrificial death on the cross. You are sinning against that brother who was redeemed and against the redeemer who redeemed him. But I thought I was just exercising a right. No, you were sinning. Oh, man. And I'll tell you what, this is the mindset about this issue that we must develop. It's, it's better for us to err on the side of, should I exercise this right or is it a sin? You have to have that as a factor. You have to factor that in. Is the exercising of my right, is it sinful because it hurts somebody? This is the mindset we need to develop. And, and we don't walk around with this. We just walk around with, as Americans, with constitutional rights and Christians with Christian rights. These are my rights. These are my rights. These are my rights. This is how we think. We need to develop a new mindset. That's theology proper. If the exercising of our right causes stumbling and wounding, that's a sin. That's a sin against the believer whom you've wounded and stumbled, and that's a sin against the Lord. And what Paul is saying is that simple, ladies and gentlemen. It's not rocket science. I would add that, of course, it is a forgivable sin. Hallelujah. That if you've caused someone to stumble like this, it's a forgivable sin. It's not like the unpardonable. Thank God. And if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all that unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Yet, we should still consider the potential impact of this particular type of sin, the stumbling block and the wounding of conscience. We still, we don't need to just say, well, I guess I'm just forgiven and it's great. No, 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 don't think like that. New mindset. This particular sin of causing a genuine believer to deviate, that's not like telling a little white lie, a minor sin. This is a grievous sin. No, 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 I'm not suggesting that it can't be forgiven at all. It can be, just like anything. This particular sin, I just want you to feel the weight. This particular sin of the free exercising of right and the causing of stumbling and, and the violation of conscience and all that, it, it can lead a follower to stop following. That's big. Uh, let me just ask you a question here. If you were involved in a scenario like this, how would that weigh on your conscience? Knowing that the devil used you, a freedom-loving Christian, to destroy a weaker brother or sister, how would that weigh on your conscience? Do you think that that's something that you're just going to be able to 
go down on your knees and say, Lord, I'm just, you know, sorry for what I did to Fred and it was a bad thing. Thank you for grace in Christ. And um, I receive his uh, atoning work on my dumb behalf once more. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus Christ. Do you think you're going to be able to squat and pray, fall prostrate, pray and do that and then just return to business as usual? No. No, this is the kind of sin, even though it's forgiven, it lingers. You're going to feel this for a while. You were used by the adversary to destroy. That's not going away with one simple prayer. Uh-uh. I don't think just confessing a grievous sin like that would actually clear our conscience and immediately restore the joy of our salvation, Psalm 51, 12. I don't think it would. Maybe. Honestly, for me personally, I think this kind of sin would probably take years and years and years to recover from, knowing that I had done something like that. Like the sin of adultery. Or even something as grievous as the sin of murder. Have you not murdered someone's spiritual life at the free exercise of your liberty? You have. That's not going away. Am I trying to scare you? Yeah, I am. Because like you, I don't want to do this to somebody. Not because of my stupid freedom. Come on, come on. Let's get serious here. Amen? Amen? You want to cause something like this for somebody? No. 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 Heavens no. Never, 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 never. And I probably have with all those stupid Facebook wars. No. No, this is not something that we want to endeavor or be part of. Mm -mm. This... Knowing, knowing that I'm forgiven in Christ, wonderful. Knowing that he paid for such a foolish sin, wonderful. Praise God. But I think it would still haunt me. For a long time. What is Paul saying? Be careful. That's all he's saying. 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Mm. Man. Given the serious nature of such sin, Paul says he will personally avoid eating meat offered to idols or doing anything that might put a weaker brother or sister at risk. He elevates the common interest, right, above his own self-interest or above any self-interest that might cause injury to others. What, what are we seeing in verse 13? That's what love looks like, ladies and gentlemen. Love looks like I am more concerned about the common interest than self-interest. I am going to lay down my Christian liberties if that's what it takes to preserve unity and to preserve the spiritual lives and consciences of my brothers and sisters. That is Love, the laying down of one's rights, that is love. And that's what we're called to. That's love. Where do you suppose Paul learned this? From Christ. He learned it 
from Jesus who laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16. That's what the Christian life is about. It's not about the free expression of our liberties. It's about, it's about the laying down of our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's what Christ did. That's what Paul did. That's what this thing is about. That's what this thing is about. And like Paul, and more importantly, like Jesus, we should be ready and willing to lay down our own rights in order to help a fellow believer, a brother or sister whom we should love, and a precious soul for whom Christ died. That family is the message and application of chapter 8, 1 Corinthians.